In the capable hands of Abuela Paladin, the bus lumbered past the towering guardians of the Redwood Highway, rocking Marina to sleep in her little bed at the back. That rocking motion became a womb from which a familiar dream was once again birthed. As always, the dream opened with Marina and a group of young women being pursued through the desert by a mysterious entity. He was dressed like a short-lived extra in a black-and-white TV western, and in that same two-dimensional narrative that conditioned its viewers to swallow polarization wholesale, the reason for pursuing them was as obscured to them as his face. They'd gained enough miles on him that they were able to take a breather and stopped at a public laundromat. Out of the heat of the midday sun, the women made themselves comfortable while waiting for what they'd loaded into the machines. Two of them leaned against the dryer, hand-rolling cigarettes, while one enjoyed straddling a washing machine on the spin cycle, like a post-industrial sex-positive Annie Oakley. In all the times she'd seen this dream, it had never made sense to Marina that instead of laundering clothing in the dream, they were laundering guns. She had seen herself in this dream many times, lounging on the upholstered bench with its weathered and torn vinyl, her legs draped across her lover's lap. But no matter how hard she tried, she could never see her lover's face, just her delicate fingers tracing up and down her bare legs, gently stroking that erotic valley in the bend behind her knee. That one thing, more than anything else, was what made her helpless to the feelings that swept over her every time she had this dream. The woman who was always their leader in it asked Marina if she'd had another dream and written it in her book yet, because the laundry was almost done and they needed to know what happens next. The group was tethered to Marina's dream world, in a way that always made sense to her when she was having the dream, but made no sense at all when she woke and thought about it. Her dreams were their only defense against what was chasing them. It gave them directions to their next destination, like it had done with this laundromat, a place for a few minutes of respite until he caught up with them. And they could do nothing until she not only had the dream, but wrote it down in the book she carried with her everywhere, like a two-part charm. But it came with a price. Each time she wrote down her dream, two things happened. It prepared them all for what their next destination was and what to expect there. But it also alerted their pursuer to their destination. A mashup of self-fulfilling prophecy and somnambulist cat and mouse complicated by his ability to enter their minds once Marina's dream was written down. Which is why Marina hadn't wanted to commit her latest to the pages of her dismal book of prophecy, because it had shown her what it always does in that dream, a bloodbath, a firestorm in which they all died at the hands of this otherworldly psychopath whose only goal was to keep them in a constant state of fear before killing them, as though fear was the perfect tenderizer. 
It was at this point, as Marina slept rocked in the ribbon of Redwood Highway, that her dream became divergent. Each time she'd had it, she invariably ended up writing it down and waking as she and her lover died in the firestorm it led them into. But this time she reluctantly explains her hesitation to put the dream in her book and suggests an alternative to the group, one which inspires her love to bend down and kiss that spot behind her knee. That's how good her lover is at knowing a good idea when she hears it. Ladies, as lethal as this asshole is, he's a simple creature who knows only anger and fear. That's it. No subtle emotions, no complexity, no shades of gray, just anger and fear. His arsenal consists of the pure, distilled energy of only those two emotions but so concentrated we don't stand a chance against them. It's why we've been running, even though we know he's going to catch up with us. So let's come up with a way to use that against him. Any thoughts? How would you elude a pursuer who has the ability to follow you right into your mind? What would you fight him with? Never let it be said that women of action who know the importance of keeping their guns in proper working order can't also be stellar problem solvers. One by one they tossed ideas out in an elegant volley of verbal badminton until they formed an impenetrable defense against the darkness. What they concluded was, you would fight them with your mind with your imagination and your capacity for emotional depth and complexity. You wouldn't just figure out what his weakness is. You would figure out what makes that weakness tick and make it your strength. The sociopath customarily experiences only anger, or at the very least has very low-functioning emotions other than anger, right? So how do you turn those other emotions into a weapon? How do you build a love bomb? You don't give him the advantage. You don't play his game. They agreed a different weapon was called for. If he'd tapped into their wireless connection and was feeding on their fear, then they hit him with the most complex emotions they can come up with by uploading them to him when he logs on. Befuddled disgust. Disappointed, bittersweet delight, passionate ennui, any and all complex emotions they could think of, even if it meant inventing new ones. They needed to imagineer emotions more destructive to him than anger. In short, their battle plan involved one of two outcomes. Kill him in a firestorm of emotions he can't defend himself against because they're too complicated persist with the creation of one new emotion after another until he exhausts the only emotion available to him, anger. Hit him with so many shades of all the emotions in the lexicon of the emotional spectrum, he simply can't keep up with it. And then, for the first time, experiences the embarrassment of defeat, literally dying of embarrassment. The other outcome? Transmute his anger and recruit him, because the entity that sent him, 
is far more dangerous than he could ever be, and sometimes the best way to fight a demon is with a bigger, badder demon, one you know how to keep on a leash. The sound of gravel beneath the tires, followed by the squeaking brakes of Abuela Express, woke Marina from the dream. She sat up to see they were at the rest stop outside Leightonville as her mother set the parking brake and rushed back to her. So, did you get the answer this time? She said. Living in a rural county means growing accustomed to the sound of gunfire. Sometimes it's just hunters. Other times it's their evil twins, the poachers looking to bag something off-season at night. Just as there's the occasional blast of dynamite taking out a tree stump by day, but by night there's the ill-timed M80 going off for little more than shits and giggles, laced with a generous portion of hostility toward neighbors and anyone within earshot. Both girls tried to sleep through the nerve-shattering explosions, pretending they were coming from the hills, or some tweaker convinced he has every right to blow things up in the middle of the night. Until the sound of glass shattering as pictures fell from the walls made it impossibly clear that all of it was coming from inside the house. Wallace wasn't sure if she was upset that a mudslide had forced Betty and Emery to stay over in Reading, or relieved. Their foster father's approach to the Fantods was to blame the girls for late-night shenanigans and make them pay for the damages, which both girls agreed was just one example of how taxing the cruel indifference of willful ignorance can be. And then there was the lecture they would get from Betty, who would quote scripture about not opening the door to the devil. Wallace and Simone were pretty sure that door had been opened long before they got there, since the House of Antods had a reputation for being demonically possessed going back to when it was first built. Besides, there's a vast difference between opening the door to the devil and opening your heart to children being traumatized even more than they were to begin with. The two foster sisters had learned the hard way to grit their teeth and give comfort to each other on nights like these, hence the birth of their sororal support system. To step outside that system for comfort and support was to risk being told they'd just been asking for it so deserved what they got or worse, being slapped with the accusation that they were themselves demonically possessed. Basically, in the world Wallace and Marina inhabited, they had two choices, except that demons, ghosts, and all manner of paranormal activity 
was evil incarnate, or deny its existence altogether. To not deny it was to set themselves up for being bullied by those boys with their permanent hall passes. Neither girl was sure which was worse, accepting that they were demon magnets or being called ugly names with impunity. But neither girl could risk stepping into the hallway and making that journey to the other's room for comfort and support this night. Wallace's wounds from the drawing room were all either of them needed to think about to know the risk of flying glass was just too real. And so they resorted to what any kid born on the electronic superhighway would. Text messaging, hugging, smiley face emojis to each other. Both hoped the mayhem would end before their batteries died, because the power had gone out one light fixture and exploding chandelier lamp at a time until the house of Fantods was pitch black. There was never any point to flashlights or candles on nights like this either. Whatever entities ruled the electricity in the house tended to have complete control of all sources of light except for some reason the light of a hugging smiley face emoji sent from one sister to the other by cell phone. And it was because they were on their cell phones that they spotted Marina's email the moment it came in. It wasn't encrypted, but was so cryptic it really didn't need to be. All it said was, Stay positive, my dudettes. They hate that. But happiness is a warm gun. So don't be afraid to switch it up now and then. The complexity confuses them. Is she telling us to sing Kumbaya? Simone texted to Wallace. Well, as long as no one is sleeping tonight, what can it hurt? Wallace replied. That wasn't Simone's point. Her point was, how did Marina know the house wasn't sleeping tonight? And what was all that about a warm gun and confusing them with complexity? Them who? The answer is complex, Marina said. Okay, so what is it? The answer. What is the answer? It's complex. This could have gone on all night and still not gotten them anywhere. So Marina clarified while the two made good use of the rest area. They stretched their legs for close to an hour while Marina and her mother discussed the dream. Sometimes the best way to build a good conversation is to infuse it with oxygen, and the best way to do that is with a good long walk while talking. Anyone within earshot of mother and daughter would have been privileged to a conversation that became an elegant volley of emotional nuance and complexity, the likes of which are rarely heard beyond the walls of Abuela Paladin's rolling Faraday cage. 
which is why no one is ever within earshot of their conversations, and the ones like this that don't happen on the bus are carefully carried out in places like deserted rest stops in the redwoods. Returning to their home on wheels, her eyes turned to the needlepoint Marina had made for its christening. Polarization is for tools. Their home may be little more than an old converted bus with a dubious reputation, but it was little touches like that that made the paladins feel at home, no matter where they were. Like all paladins, her daughter was born with far more going on than just being a garden-variety empath. It was obvious pretty early on that her kid was channeling some next-level input from the unseen, and unlike so many parents of kids on the psychic spectrum, she fostered it as hers had been fostered. If Marina was going to learn to manage a lifelong communication with the unseen, the best way to teach her was to be a positive role model in championing the art of communication. There are those who do little more with a conversation than use it to jockey for a position of dominance. Those conversations were something she taught Marina to steer clear from. Not only are energy vampires tools, they're the worst tools polarization is capable of producing, which is why the other thing she taught her daughter was to stay away from cable news stations. That short visit to the house of Fantods had exhausted Marina, but it also attracted some powerful input, the kind Abuela had hoped would help her complete the dream. And now, thanks to that, they had most of what they needed to move forward. Abuela Paladin could only hope Cassandra stayed off their radar while she put it all together before her pursuers got to her. Being in that kind of power dream cycle without protective screening is the equivalent of sending up a bat signal to the opposition. They'll do anything they can to track it and use it to their advantage. And the opposition's advantage is never aligned with what is best for the rest of us, especially not women like Cassandra Speaks. Hopefully, Champ is obscuring their signal so he can have her to himself for a while. Both paladins were confident Cassandra could handle another one of Dark Energy's lieutenants messing with her head, especially considering the reinforcement she's got. While Cassandra may not have fully awakened to it yet, she is far more powerful than the opposition gives her credit for, and so is the arsenal she and her battalion are amassing. Are you going to tell me what you saw at the Carter house? Marina's mother looked at her daughter's gaze in the rearview mirror as she pulled out of the rest area. Her ability to see demons was the reason she took the gig at the gentlemen's club. They'd been receiving intel from the unseen for months that it was important they get familiar with locations like it. And it didn't take long to figure out why once she and her client arrived. The demonic presence there is best described as an infestation She'd worked with the occasional demon magnet over the years, and it never surprised her that usually it was men of great wealth 
in positions of power. But never had she seen so many demons in one location. The thing is, very few of them were actually attached to the men there. To Abuela Paladin, it seemed like they were free agents. It was both what I expected and not, she said. Ooh, paradox, Marina said. Wouldn't emotional paradox be a great name for an emo band? The empath's mother smiled, pleased to see her daughter integrating the lesson from her dream about emotional complexity with her usual flippant style. You know that poem on Wallace's blog, the one about the demon in the wall? I don't think she's the one to send in there for us. In fact, you might want to tell her to steer clear of the Carter house altogether, considering how badly that encounter affected her. And Simone was too young to do it. Marina had the feeling that meant she and her mother would be returning to Eureka at some point in the near future to continue their work. More and more, she was suspecting the continued input from the unseen about the Carter house and the messages from Cassandra about the girls in the house of Phantods were unrelated, or related in a way that had yet to reveal itself. The devil may be considered a trickster, but paradox worked in mysterious ways, much to her delight. She wouldn't tell her dudettes just yet, though. She would, however, email them and let them know she'd dreamed up a secret weapon that might help make things easier on them in that house, and hopefully provide some shielding from the opposition. There were some resonant frequencies they just can't get through, despite their powerful electronic devices. Besides, positive energy is their kryptonite. 